So right now it's a weekend afternoon and there's this humdrum of activity sort of everywhere. I can hear the neighbors working. I can hear my dog Bruno downstairs snoring. I can hear the sound of cars going by and grills being fired up and sprinklers and hoses running and the gardening and maybe home repair and backyard projects. and That's a lot going on. And that's on top of life picking back up, the vaccine rollout continuing, parts of the world opening back up, parts of states and countries and cities. And in the midst of all that, it can be easy to miss something that could actually be really important, which is why I was so intrigued when I first met Carl Slominski. It wasn't through uh, you know, a press release or something like that. It was on Twitter where I saw he was pointing out that he had just launched a Kickstarter project. He was looking for feedback from a number of websites and had gotten zero response. I was stunned thinking how frustrating it must be to be a creator and have a great creation and know you want to turn it over and show it to others and and not even being given the opportunity to use the platforms that are supposed to be there to do it to get the word out. So I reached out really quickly and let him know about the podcast, and he was quick to set up a time and date, which is how we got the chance to record this, and even before we got the chance to sit down and record, I saw that others had responded, that Carl had already uh, recorded an episode with another podcast, and I'm sure there are others in store, but for me, it was a great reminder to always be on the lookout, always you know, remember that for all the humdrum and all the background noise and all the distractions that if you miss something great, well, maybe you weren't paying enough attention, which is why I love that in this instance, I think I was. And I'm grateful that I got the chance to sit down and talk with Carl and learn about his project, Evermore Falls, and also about the great inspiration behind it, which I'm happy now to share with you here on episode number 98, Storytelling with Seth. Enjoy it along with me. Man, thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to come on and tell me all about your project. And uh, I dig the music in the background. I can only catch some guitar riffs, but it's a cool vibe. (laughs) That's what we go for. (laughs) So uh, the great thing is we're here not only to talk about you, but uh, the project Evermore Falls. Am I saying that correctly? Yes, indeed. And I immediately, I mean, one, you know, getting the chance to hear about your project was one thing, but then looking it over, I I was caught by so many of the great elements that I think people would love to hear you are um, following in the footsteps of and echoing and resonating with. For example, you know, you're starting out by saying, do you remember Amblin Entertainment? Do you remember E.T. flying you into the clouds, riding on the bikes? Do you remember that sensation? That's where we're starting at. And I love that sort of introduction. What Has this always been a goal to capture that? Or was it just an opportunity to say, if I'm going to do something, let me do it in the following way. And let me use this for inspiration. How did that all start for you? Uh, to be completely honest, I think the majority of my, uh, for lack of a better word, career decisions have been having my hand forced to make deliberate decisions to pivot. Um, at the time that I was first coming up with the initial ideas for Evermore Falls, I had just come off of a very personal project, uh, graphic novella called Teeter Topple that dealt with a lot of issues um, about self-growth and acknowledgement of past traumas uh, in a very dark comedic way. Um, and it was told with a very avant-garde structure. It was very much... Um, just a visual pastiche from all different realms of comic book execution. So there's stuff that was painted and there was stuff that was uh, colored pencil or crayon or whatever suited like the moment. And after that, it kind of found legs on its own in an organic sense because the people that found it really, really loved it and um, began to tell me, which is very strange because for a small press book, it's, it's, you know, whoever you're screaming the loudest to from your little soapbox on top of the mountain where nobody visits you. It's always kind of incredible when someone shouts back down from below, like, we saw it, it's great. <laughs> um, but it was, it's a very niche book. And I kind of feel like the thing that I wanted the most was to have something with broader appeal and something that kind of lit a fire under me in the way that like 
the Amblin Entertainment era did when I was a kid. And at the time, because this was a couple of years ago when I actually started drawing the book, um, the YA market for graphic novels in the lit space was really starting to grow and expand and companies were very interested in pushing the idea of uh, comics for young readers, which is awesome because when I was a kid, you could throw a stack of comics in front of me and they'd be devoured like my last meal. But I would go to bookstores and, you know, chain bookstores, of course, and the majority of the stuff I saw for kids was kind of visually lacking. There's this really kind of depressing notion that I discovered in modern publishing that a kid's book has to look simple and kind of dumb. And it not in any way, you know, tearing down what people have built, but the visual language for a quote unquote kids graphic novel versus like your average run of the mill Wednesday warrior pick is very condescending. I feel like to a young reader, like I grew up reading the same comics as everyone else because they were written for everyone. It wasn't too challenging for me and it wasn't too, you know, visually over the top. And I wanted to make a book that made me feel like I did when I was reading, you know, like Jim Lee's X-Men, like look at all that action and excitement on the page and then have that whole Saturday morning cartoon vibe mixed with all those great moments that uh, you remember from those movies, you know, Monster Squad, or the Goonies, stuff like that. And uh, of course, this is before Stranger Things and the nostalgia boner wasn't in full effect in pop culture yet. <laughs> But it, right. that really was the jumping off point. And it was very truly, and I, I mean no BS on this, a love letter to a bygone era of entertainment for the family that wasn't necessarily spoon feeding everyone that was partaking. I think that's a fairly apt description. Um, I think I think you've done a really great job of painting that. And I'm Curious when you're talking about it also that you're, you know, uh, taking this approach while looking as the artist to put these images on the page. Was there someone who you were able to look at that you felt maybe um, offered a style that you could uh, reflect on? Or, uh, you know, I mean, because you're talking about the action of Jim Lee, but you're also talking about the, um, the family, uh, family centered idea behind those Amblin Entertainment movies from that period. So you're also talking about capturing that period, but you're not looking to do it in a way maybe like Stranger Things, but you are looking to capture those elements and, and have it displayed in an artistic style that isn't condescending to the reader. Had anyone done this that you felt before or were you essentially carving new territory? Uh, I think it would be incredibly egomaniacal of me but I wouldn't put it past me to say that I'm carving new territory. I wanted to give you the opportunity to establish a stance from this point. Like you could either be like, <laughs> I am oh, a yes. pretentious blowhard. <laughs> my hands on my hips. I have created the only original thing ever in art. And, <laughs> and then, it, you know, I was going to be like, this could be really interesting, but I also wanted to give you the opportunity to, you know, mention any, you know, significant influences, references or other. <laughs> Listen, when they erect the statue of me in Times Square, <laughs> Um, no, I think a lot of people approach, especially visually, uh, storytelling very differently depending on who is doing it. I think it's a uniquely Western comics position um, that I'm rebelling against because if you take a look at Bon Desne from France or uh, the manga market, which there's a major conversation going on right now about how much more successful manga is versus the standard U.S. comics market, it's because it's all sorts of styles and it's not like this is a kid style versus this is an adult style. And there's a real, everywhere but the U S there's a real reverence for the art form. And over here, it's a very much like 2080 <laughs> split as far as who cares about the art versus who cares about the characters. We're very much, uh, we have hero worship in the States where it's very much like we're a Batman, Captain America kind of, group of people but we're not really like totally dialed into who the creators are all the time unless we're really 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 engrossed in that world um because i i know people that love comic books they do not care about any of those characters but they care about the artists 
and the creators and how they tell the story. So long story short, uh, no, I'm probably not paving new ground, but uh, I'm definitely a rare breed. I think that's a, I think that's a really good identifier there. <laughs> um, I'm also just, you know, curious because you brought up something interesting about, you know, how the approach to comics is uh, around the rest of the world compared to the United States. A couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to visit Hong Kong. We had family there. And there's this really neat um, park where you can walk through and it has statues of all of the different comic characters who have become established in the mind's eye of the culture. And each one was significantly different from the next. I mean, there were some elements that sometimes you know, we're clearly an homage to others. But overall, I felt that as I was going through each one of these statues, it was like, yeah, I've seen certain things like this, but it feels, you know, very clearly its own identity. And, and yeah. through that, this understanding of why each of these characters held such importance. And, you know, there was so much reference to the time in which they're being told, the, uh, the stories that they told when sometimes stories like that weren't allowed in any other media. And mm -hmm. I, I thought it was a great reflection for me just on this idea of what the medium has meant in so many other places where it wasn't just about, uh, well, smash, bam, biff, <laughs> boom. Um, am I, I think, you know, pop. Uh, and, and also just, you know, is there always a need for a two page splash page that's basically- Yes, the answer is always you know, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in most situations, because that's how it's groomed. My first comic was like 1993 or two, and maybe it was one. And I distinctly remember like from that point, like that that's how I entered the world of comics and everything else was a difficult thing to digest. It wasn't as pretty and it didn't fit the formula. And it didn't offer me the same kind of solace. Like, you know, suddenly other elements were jarring. But then also, if you looked at the stories and started, you know, considering why the art was being used in that way, gradually and very gradual, we're talking about maturation process here for me. So I, I think it's really, you know, important that you're talking about how when you're doing, you know, an approach that recognizes and, you know, clear difference to that intention that you might see in Western comics and, and how that's reflected in yours, but also how it's inspired by Amblin. I, I think rare breed is a good description. I think you've, uh, <laughs> I think you've really hit it for us. I would love to talk more about um, however more falls reflects that um, you've also got some great characters that I, I'd love to hear more about their inspiration and also how you captured them on the page. If there was an artistic style that you knew you wanted or one you discovered, um, would you rather start with Milo or Izzy first? Uh, I feel like Izzy is probably the easiest to start with because it's, it is Izzy's story first and foremost. She's, she's a badass, like in a way that she doesn't know that she is because she's a kid and she doesn't question anything that's happening once this whole story revolves around the fact that this kid just buys it from the go. She just knows <laughs> like, sure. There's a book of random magic stories that is about this place that I just found out I can go to. And sure. There are giant monsters. Not once is she, you know, questioning that not once is she cynical or scornful. Cause that's how a kid is like the idea that kids have that discernibility in a way that like, as adults, you kind of lose, like you, you become crusty for lack of a better word. And I know I do too, because I mean, how often have you seen something you're just like, Oh my God, I've seen that 38 times. Izzy didn't, <laughs> Izzy believes this is like the coolest thing ever because she's still at that point where it's like, I'm the most enthusiastic about being enthusiastic. Nothing has, nothing has ruined her life. Giant monsters are here and that is not ruining her life. She's going to save the day. Not because she's trained her whole life, just because she read a book where knights saved the day. And she was like, that's what you do when monsters come. <laughs> and it's, it's very intentional that I wrote both of the kids a little smarter than the adults. <laughs> because that's something that's also lacking in, uh, in modern storytelling when it comes to, especially in all ages stuff. There's always that moment where there is the... The, the shaking finger at the children of like, you know, 
when you're a grown up, this magic sassafras isn't going to matter that much. And it's that magic sassafras that keeps the hope alive. And it's, it's what makes comics kind of pure in that sense to me. I love comics as escapism. And the second the words grounded or gritty or real life get introduced to it, and you get those people that refer to comics as graphic novels, that's when you start getting into that cynical territory that kind of takes away from what makes this medium great in the first place. Like you have no restrictions with a blank page. You can do anything you want. The only limitation is your ability as an artist. Why would you draw two people in a room talking? <laughs> because you never had the chance to become a successful playwright. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, <laughs> we got that, a 24 <laughs> for that. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think, uh, I, I think that the, the fun idea to consider now is when it comes to Izzy, is she you at a certain age? Is she someone you knew or that, you know, or is she uh, a great, you know, reflection of, I don't know, Punky Brewster done grown up or, you know, something else where you can capture a moment and just say here, right here, or maybe you plus you and maybe a little sprinkle of some other, you know, because you, you also mentioned the idea of um, Goonies being also another influence. And in that you had this representation, right? You had this, this group of kids and each one had their strength and, um, weakness. They they had the thing that they were you know cheered on for, and the others they were derided. And so much of what you've got going on is just in one kid. Um, was there uh, one specific point, or was it drawn from a lot of different places? The creation of Izzy. On my better days, Izzy is me at my most optimistic. Okay. Um, because I'm still a little sonic boom that can't be contained. Um, because I, I do tend to, like, I, I play with comics all day. That's all I do is I wake up solely for the purpose of creating things that don't exist from nothing. To the cynical brain, that is a daunting task. But just someone who's just here to have a blast, man, that is Candyland. Like, Izzy is 100% me on one of my better days where I'm just like, I just get to make stuff and sometimes destroy stuff, sometimes on the same page. Like it's, it's that like just vibrant enthusiasm that tends to be infectious. Like if you're around me long enough, especially if I'm like at a convention, like there's no way you're not going to have a ball talking about comics and making stuff. And like, this goes across the board. Like it doesn't matter the medium, anyone that is truly, truly passionate about making something from nothing. Like you vibe off that you want to just, it's when you see a great movie, you leave the theater and you're just like, Holy heck, yeah, that was the best thing I've ever seen. Um, but, you know, on, on my lesser days, on my more cynical days, I'm Milo. I'm a little bit more cautious. I'm a little bit more parental in a way that's only learned because that's how parents are. Kids don't naturally have that, like, I don't know if that's a good idea unless their parents are like, that's not a good idea. And that's very much, uh, he's the product of not having a parent around and having to parent himself. Right. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, and how we decide at some point that that's something we need to take on the, the role or responsibility of, like, we have to, you know, use that discernment because there's consequences. We've seen bad things happen to others or, you know, we've been scolded that one serious time and it's like, okay, I'm going to do it their way this time. And it, 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 it sticks, it imprints. Um, really before we switch over to Milo, I'm just curious when it comes to Izzy, um, Izzy reminds me of what I'm like, there is beauty in every day. I can, you know, sing a song about the fact that I've woken up and, and feel like grateful and, and happy and, and find that like anything I want to create, I can just do it. You know, there's no, how do I get there? There's no question. It's just like, that's where I was. This is where I am. And, and I go. And then there's the other days where it's like, did I eat something bad? Did I sleep <laughs> terrible? did I do too much the other day and now oh, yeah. I'm paying for it, you know? And then it's like, okay, I still have this, like, oh, I, I have one small foot in a toe. I have a toe in the door of the comic industry right now, which is an online one I'm doing for a British company and it's being collected in books. And that's like as close as I've gotten to like, you know, I'm in something. I have no idea what I've got a toenail. I'm looking around. I'm kind of like, okay, how do I do anything more with it? But 
also with those, I, you know, I've got a deadline that's set up and some days I can crank out a story. It's perfect. And other ones I'm like, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Oh, sweet God. What was I thinking that I could do? (laughs) You know, why did I even, you know, because I've also, I work with a friend who were novelists and we're always pitching that, but that feels like such a long, that's like a marathon. Like you don't worry about, but this is like, man, I'm in a sprint. And suddenly I, I thought this was a good idea, but I'm cramping. My lungs hurt. This seems, yeah. So when you're, you know, trying to get there, I can only imagine with someone like Izzy, you don't want to feel like that Milo side or that tired side or that other part of you that could get in the way of Izzy being so great on the page. How do you tap back in, go to the well, uh, you know, put on either the music soundtrack or the movie that, that picks you back up into that place where you're like, I know what Izzy would do, even if it's not in me right now, 100%. Uh, I'm, you know, my settings, bearings have all been realigned. I know exactly, you know, how to come back to Izzy right now, whether I've got it or not. And then when the days where you got it, of course, you're just like, of course, why is this so hard? Blah, 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 blah. Izzy is actually a really easy character in that respect, because to understand Izzy is to understand you haven't finished the question. The answer is yes. And like an enthusiastic, yes. Hey, Izzy, do you want it? Yes. And she's already out the door, like with the cloud of smoke hanging there from where she just, you know, beelined out. Like that's all you need to know to understand Izzy. Curious to a fault, usually to her detriment, doesn't really care. The thinking twice part probably will exist, but probably when she's like two days away from death and she'll die like at a healthy 130 years old because this is the only way she knows how to exist. I can imagine her almost with a little fist in the air and a yay. Like, oh, hey, for sure. Yay. <laughs> What's next? Right. Who oh, knows? Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Oh, that'll that's be exciting. Good. Like, you don't even have to tell her. <laughs> that'll be cool. <laughs> so, were, were, there, were there any guarantees? Like, uh, I remember talking with, uh, what's his name? Mark Guggenheim. Um, for the uh he did the arrow series and stuff like that and he would say hey when yeah. he, he knew he had to write certain things he would like read something either the night before or right before he had to write that thing that he knew would sort of like channel him in that direction like there would be this sort of feeling of like hey if i'm going to write something that's a bit stoic or poetic or if he wanted to channel other parts he would have a, a couple of sources of writing that he could reference and then after reading that and then either sleeping on it or turning around and then looking at his project through that lens. Were, were there any uh, go-tos for you that you just knew? Like, this is an Izzy thing. This will always bring me back to Izzy. Um, not particularly because you, you find when you're drawing a comic and writing it, uh, if you know how your character acts on the page when you're illustrating, you kind of know how you're going to write them and then, the opposite is true. If you know how they're acting, you know how you're going to draw them later. And it, it's never been a real struggle to get the characters down on the page. So the voice kind of comes naturally. Uh, Milo and Izzy are very much two peas in a pod, but they're the complete opposites of the same coin. They're both very rambunctious, but in their own ways, in the same way that Clem and Boog reflect that when they get to Evermore Falls, one of them is the go-getter adventurer. The other one is the worrisome one who's always kind of acting as the faux parent. And it's nice to have that reflection in characters that don't look like Izzy and Milo. And it's very subtle, but there's a scene in Evermore Falls where Milo and Boog are talking about how you have to keep your Izzy's, you know, on a short leash. And it's kind of sweet because (laughs) it's these two characters who kind of have had the same walk of life and they've just met. And they're just like, oh yeah, no, it, it's 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 work. <laughs> so uh, tell us uh, a little bit more about Milo because I've I've spent some time on Izzy and now I'm curious about the other side of the coin. And you, you made some uh, you've alluded to a few things, uh, Milo, without you know that influence to uh, turn him into an adult or, or with the caution so he's become his own um, sort of you know parent. And, and other, other things we can learn about Milo, or if I've totally misinterpreted what details I thought I was picking up, please correct no, me. No, you're, you're right on the money. Uh, okay. Milo, Milo is really smarter than he knows he is. And I think it's because he does have that discernibility and that cautious, like, I'll just dip my toe in. Um, but he also doesn't want to let his bestest friend in the whole wide world down. 
which is why he's the one that shows back up when Izzy has the book. It's like, I want to hear the rest of the story. And he's the one that like helps her escape from uh, the bad guys at their apartment or excuse me, their house when uh, they finally go to Evermore Falls. And he's the one that's like, listen, this is Izzy's adventure, but like, it's not an adventure unless Izzy's there. So if I need to be around Izzy, I have to be around Izzy because who knows what Izzy's going to get into. And I don't even think he realizes that he's that valuable. And I don't think Izzy realizes he's that valuable, but like they have such a strong bond in the fact that like they are 100% their perfect opposite um, in that way that kind of kids can only have. Like I do not know adults that have childhood friendships that last past maybe 20. If you do, it's usually weird because you kind of do outgrow your childhood friends. But these two genuinely at this point in their life need each other. And I don't think they know it. And I don't think it's something that I really explore because it's kind of in the delivery and in the execution on the page um, because it's really subtle. Like they care for each other very, very deeply. And they know that at the end of the day, it's just those two against the world. Just like at the end of the book when they're like, let's go find our next adventure because that's how they sought out to have their lives be. I love the idea of even, you know, sort of picturing um, the symbiosis of that relationship, the, the shared support that they can offer each other and, and how it's probably something akin to one of them doing something and the other one after being around them or sort of uh, understanding who they are so well can just say, here, you'll need this. You know, just the idea of if they're doing something like, here, let me give you something because I know you. Uh, yeah. we, we are each other's, you know, even though it's the opposite of what I would need, I know this is what you need. And though that can create, I, I can imagine some lovely moments and you've captured and allow me if I'm just going from recall 234 pages. In this yes, book. indeed. Yes. Nice. Indeed. Nice. Okay. So I've, Oh, it's a meaty, some, so. it's a meaty little doorstop of a comic. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But also you've got some great entry points for people that, you know, this is a Kickstarter project. It's running until, uh, July clarify that for uh june 27th june 27th See, two weeks left on this sucker all right uh <laughs> and and keeping that in mind you know people can enter whatever point they feel from digital to uh the the actual physical copy to you've got a couple of additional add-ons the book plate and and more um which yep. which is great because it's you know pretty much how do you want to enjoy your media go ahead and click the option that works great for you um, going back to the story, Milo and Izzy, they're not just two characters who sit around. We're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with the following ads and then bring you right back to our conversation. Right. They actually like get into stuff. They get into things. What do they get into in, uh, Evermore Falls? What, what, what can we sort of summarize for folks that, lets them know what they can look forward to, maybe hook them once or twice, depending on, you know, however much you choose to uh, include. But where is it that we find Milo and Izzy in this story? What starts them off and where are they going? And you even mentioned some other characters that they come across. Can you walk me through? Um, yeah. So the story starts out with Milo and Izzy just being the shoegazing kids that kind of create the worlds in their head to uh, escape the monotony of living in a small town, um, very much like a Stephen King setup. Um, as a guy that grew up in a small town with not much to do, escapism, like comics and movies, is like the only way to survive the suburbs. It's one of those things that you're just like, bigger and better things like 24 seven. And it starts to set in at a young age, you kind of start to realize like there are better things out there. There are more exciting things out there. And I think that weighs heavily on the two characters. So they, they actively seek out adventure and uh, do so in a way that may not exist. They may be kids that are looking for adventure. Uh, a lot of the times you'll see in the book that uh, Izzy has all sorts of harebrained ideas about secret histories of the town they're from, or maybe something like aliens or what have you. And it's that overactive imagination. And then 
when they go to a antique store, they find a book about this place called Evermore Falls, which legend has it is a secret world where monsters live. And then later that night, they discover that the book was stolen from someone from that world and they're coming back to find it. And chaos ensues when they get dragged to Evermore Falls and realize that the book is reality in true, beautiful 80s throwback form. Ah, that's awesome. I have so many great tinges of never-ending story and so much more just sort of like trumpeting in my head. And um... (laughs) I got to be honest, I had never seen the never-ending story until I was like midway through drawing this. Um, (laughs) It's hilarious. My fiance was like, you've never seen never-ending story and you're you're drawing this? And I was like, yeah, no, never seen Labyrinth either. I mean, I know it's got dance, magic, (laughs) dance and Bowie wearing a great wig, but uh, so she sat me down and I watched both of those and I'm like, I'm so glad I didn't see those when I was like deep in the thick of it because they totally would have colored how I did this. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. You know, those are those are in the minds of certain folks, significant. Uh, <laughs> oh, for sure. In the 80s movies. And I distinctly remember both of them. I remember seeing like, I feel like Labyrinth was a Disney one and that uh I think we at some point later got the Disney Channel because very sheltered house, uh, but Disney apparently was approved. And I remember seeing like some behind the scenes things with Bowie with the globe and how every once in a while he'd be like, smash. Okay, can we get another one of those? Because uh, (laughs) this isn't as easy as it looks and it takes quite a bit of coordination and focus. And sometimes I don't have that. (laughs) (laughs) I never have that. (laughs) It's actually, Uh, it's funny. My, my initial inception of the idea, um, since I had no touchstones like that yet, I knew of them. And I'm sure I had like fever dream recollections of like clips at like sleepovers with friends and stuff like that. I initially came up with the idea uh, after watching Clive Barker's Nightbreed because it's a story about a hidden world where monsters live. (laughs) Wow. I was like, this is a very interesting idea. I think this could be so bigger and so cooler if it was like a kid adventure story and you really push that element because the Clive Barker one is very much a singular hero story and it's of course Clive Barker so it gets very R-rated but uh, (laughs) yeah that was my jumping off point because I was like I love the idea of fantasy worlds like just the idea of escaping to fantasy world sign me up I don't even care if it's a bad movie if you're (laughs) escaping to a fantasy world in some way that whole Lewis Carroll aspect I don't care. I'll sit down and watch Cool World with you. It's all good. Let's do this. Oh, hey, I got you. Like, without question. Plus, you're, you're doing that thing that I've loved since Bed Knobs and Broomsticks. Like, oh my gosh. You know, can we talk about Bed Knobs and Broomsticks? That is one of the greatest <laughs> underrated magic movies I've ever seen because not only is it 100% gonzo bananas, but that ending with all like the reanimated soldier costumes fighting Nazis, you would oh, yeah. never see that in a movie now. <laughs> That was my favorite part in that movie as a kid. Forget the animated sequence. (laughs) Give me all of those like weird, just shell armor fighting machine guns. It's the weirdest (laughs) thing I've ever seen. It was the wildest thing I'd come across. I mean, I was so captivated. Like everything about it was just like, are you kidding me? Like who, 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 wait, what? I get it. Never mind. I'm just watching now. I'm just totally, wait, I've quite, never mind. And it, it, it did that the entire and what a what a great description of that ending. Thank you, man. Oh, it's it's fantastic. And that movie does something really unique to that era of um, filmmaking for kids, uh, kind of in the same way that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang does. Every character is so rich and interesting in a way that they don't have to be for that story, but it makes it so much more interesting. Um, Definitely. And I just I I love that. There's no real explanation for why, oh, I forgot his name, uh, but the gentleman that uh, is in Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, he's squatting in a house with an unactivated bomb in the front yard. That is a story in itself. That is, I think about that as an adult more than I think about everything else in that movie because I'm just like, that, what is that story? What is his story? I'm sure he's crazy. <laughs> that, is, that is a great jumping off point. I said it out loud, though, so if I write something like that, you'll know where that came from. 
Yes, yes, but I will be laughing out loud, and so will anyone else who heard this conversation. They're going to be like, "Yes, yes." There it was. What? (laughs) (laughs) There it was. I was there that Friday in June when he was like, (laughs) "Bed knobs and broomsticks, son of a gun." (laughs) And that was when the moment was defined that that bed knobs and broomsticks is one of the most underrated magic movies ever to be created, and you know go ahead and let the uh, critics argue from this point on, but we've established it. And uh, <laughs> I love that reference point. That's huge. Um, it so- is, it's one of those things that slowly seeped into when you mentioned it, I was like, holy crap, that really was something that influenced <laughs> Like, I didn't even remember until you mentioned that. But, that, you know, even down to like little characters like Mr. Copperbottom in the beginning of the book is very clearly an homage to like the shopkeeper character, like that whimsical thing that all of those movies and stories had where it was like, don't do that. Don't get the gremlins wet after midnight. Like that character is in everything. (laughs) And And so significant, like you almost want and need that. You're like, come on, give us the warning. So we know the rule that you're not supposed to break and you're going to break. Like just set it up for us, man. (laughs) Exactly. You get it. You're a writer, you know. (laughs) So really quickly, it, can you uh, allude to, because uh, you, you gave a, a brief mention to the, the introduction of these two pairs of characters, but we've mostly talked about Milo and Izzy. Did you want to talk about the other two characters that they engage with at all, just to, who it is that they're meeting and, and maybe any teasers you'd like to include about that? Uh, well, they learn through their newfound friend, Clem, who is the personality of Evermore Falls, because since launching the Kickstarter, everyone's a stuffed animal of him. Um, okay. And I, I do too, quite frankly, because talk about ego stroking. Um, <laughs> he he is the the pulse of this movie because he is totally the Izzy of Evermore Falls, um, and a little bit of a rabble rouser in his same respects. But he kind of you know, lets them know the world is real, and they soon discover that there is a bad monster because there's always a bad monster who's kind of got happen. a chip on his shoulder about the monsters going into hiding after, you know, man's evils have kind of driven them into hiding. Very adult subject matter stuff, but handled gracefully like all of those older stories. Um, and deep underneath Evermore Falls are the ancient ones, the biggies, the baddies, the beasts. Uh, and with the book, he has the power to unleash them upon this mortal land. And he does. And it's awesome. <laughs> that is a perfect setup. Um, I, I love the idea of you know getting the chance for um, Izzy to meet a, a counterpart in in Clem, and and also sort of get an idea of just what a little bit more of Izzy or Izzy taken a little bit further in the rabble rousing direction might look like for her, like what she can consider if that's something that you know, she wants to emulate, or if it's something that's definitively different from how she's going to, you know, make her choices in the future. So I like that sure. idea of the similarity with just a little bit of a difference that also allows the reader to sort of just sort of go, hey, so that's not quite like Izzy. Why is that difference? What does that mean to me? Um, and I think that can really provide some great moments for comparison, because, you know, Introducing these characters is one thing, the first two with Milo and Izzy, but then offering that sort of mirror-like that's a little bit different, I, I think that's a really great premise because I, as your story's progressing, they're both going to see things very similarly, but they're both going to have very different ideas about how to approach them, how to respond, and, and what to do about it. And I want, I'm curious to see what the conflicts might look like that. And then as you described, there is always a dark, bad monster. It's just always the, you know, the opposite of the light. And also what this book could give him access to, which is the, the ancient ones, a, an old evil, the kind which uh, is probably best left in a certain place and, and not called upon or uh, <laughs> bothered or, you know, disturbed in any way. But, you know, we had to. We said there was the well, place yeah, with all these you, things. We had to. <laughs> yeah, you had to poke the stick at that point. You can't be like, it's there, but we're not doing anything about it. It's like, no, you are. You you, you are. We, <laughs> we knew that was going to happen. I, I'm also interested to see how it's going to play out that this could be significant in the decision that I imagine the monsters are going to have to make about the choice they chose once so long ago. And now 
the new position they might be forced into because of the rise of the ancient ones and the fact that maybe stopping the ancient ones is something they can't accomplish on their own. They might need help. They might need to rely on those very beings they hid themselves away from for so long ago. I'm speculating, I'm suggesting, but I, I do like that there's that possibility as well as many others in store for the monsters as a new threat arises. You know, it's, it's great to consider that you can avoid the troubles of the world if you go somewhere else, but that doesn't mean that there won't be trouble almost anywhere you go. Like trouble, <laughs> it has a way of popping up. And I think you present a really interesting challenge through the monsters and a really great way of entering that story through Milo and Izzy. I'm wondering too, um, is, this, is this a story with a definitive ending or have you also potentially suggested the idea of more left to be told, either an extension or something else that could potentially follow depending on the success of this one and also ideas you might have about these characters, direction, anything else like that? You know, that's a great question. I, as a comics creator specifically, am not a huge fan of ongoing things because eventually you're going to suck. Uh, and that's putting it bluntly. But anytime something goes on for long enough, your returns lessen. And you can look at any modern franchise and you can pinpoint that moment every time and I don't like being in that moment and I don't ever want to even come close to sideswiping that moment because I like the idea of having stories that you can hold in your hand one time and go, this is the beginning and the end. Okay, I will read this because especially if you're like at a Comic-Con as an indie creator, that's kind of the first place that you pitch stuff to the public unless you know, you're in stores. And it always comes down to, well, how many issues are there? Oh, no, they're all there in that book right there. Oh, okay. And, you know, that'll entice someone more because they won't have to get bogged down with, you know, 30 plus years of continuity and then future purchases 30 plus years after the fact. Uh, <laughs> that being said, I have jokingly said that I have a jumping off point for a sequel. And yes, it would be called Return to Evermore Falls perfect um and it would definitely start out in a very muppets take manhattan kind of way where suddenly they're in the big city (laughs) (laughs) because they have to go back (laughs) and obviously at the end of evermore falls 2 it ends with izzy from the future coming back to tell her that she has to go back to the past in which no i'm kidding right and it's not you it's your kids it's your kids yeah it's your kids Uh, (laughs) they're total jerks Um, oh total jerks uh the tv edit i like that Right. <laughs> and then for some strange reason in the second one, Milo is replaced with a different Milo, but they don't explain that. We're referencing <laughs> Back to the Future. <laughs> for anyone who hasn't jumped on yet, go ahead. By the third one, there's a train. You can just hang on for the ride. It'll all be fun. Um, They're not going to explain anything in the third one, except trains are cool. And ZZ Top is pretty great. <laughs> trains are cool. ZZ Top is fun. And yes, you can still somehow drop in a Clint Eastwood reference and everyone's going to be okay with it because, you know, story. It's still the 80s and he's not a complete jerk. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Clint. We're coming for you. That's right, buddy. Look out. Uh, <laughs> he could give a rat's ass. <laughs> He's like, somebody said my name again? How nice for you. How does it feel? He's got to get a 15 cent bonus every time someone talks about me. It's fun. (laughs) Thank you. I'll be over here talking to an empty chair. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Maybe you'll be in it. Maybe you won't. You don't know. I'm I'm just going (laughs) to be talking. Uh, Okay, so hold on. I almost got completely off track there in this way of, well, who knows? It could still potentially go that way. I do want to point out the fact that this is all done. Uh, your kids yeah. makes a great point of saying all you need to do is fund this project and it goes from the hard drive to the printer and the turnaround time is that they're not waiting for you to put this on you know finish this up it's done it's ready to rock and roll in whatever format they end up buying in at. um did you sort of have that as a goal like i want to do this and then i want to turn around and look for the best way to you know get it out to the public was that an intention or um, was there a development in that process in any way? Or did you always know from the first page, like this will be done before I 
take this Kickstarter approach or was Kickstarter even on the radar at the time? Uh, in a strange twist of fate, I originally had my agent take it out to traditional publishing, like in the lit space. Uh, and it was a long and arduous process that taught me, nah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just because, like I spoke on earlier, the perception of what makes a good comic for kids and people of younger ages or all ages is uh, kind of lost on the higher ups, on the editorials, on the pencil pushers, the decision makers. There's a lot more trend chasing there and that's capitalism at play. I can't fault them for that, but I also can fault them for bad takes. I've heard a lot uh, of notes that we got back from our original submissions uh, and we went to everybody. Uh, your comic looks too much like a comic book. Uh, we'd like this if this were based on IP, which I thought was hilarious considering how many things are movies that are now based on comics. Um, it's too intricate for a kid's book. And my favorite was, uh, it needs to be in color because black and white is depressing. And I was like, you hate to break it to you, but the highest selling books in the world are The Walking Dead and manga. So <laughs> I don't know where you got that fact. But uh, it was a good experience because it literally told me everything I needed to know about an industry that I thought might be making better decisions. And then I realized you should have gone with your gut from the jump and just invested in yourself. And quite frankly, it's way more rewarding to have a personal connection with the people that are engaging your work. And the response has been overwhelming. Like we were funded in the first four days and I was expecting a long month a long month and a lot of gray hairs. And instead, I was pleasantly surprised. Apparently there is a fan base, uh, international one too, no less. I had no idea about that. <laughs> so uh, it's phenomenal. been humbling. And it's, uh, I can't, I, I'm the most enthusiastic about my work than I've ever been because now it's just, what's next? Tons of stuff. I got tons of stuff for y'all. Oh man, that's that's my favorite West Wing quote. I always loved that 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 line from, you know, hey, we just did something big. Okay, what's next? And for me, that was just always a huge, whenever I hear that one, I'm always encouraged. It's that sense of, yeah, we're done with this. Let's tackle the next thing. And that's I love kind of where I am right now. That, that <laughs> quote is exactly where I am right now. Whereas like, if you were to ask me two years ago while we were in submissions process, I'd come back to that Ed Wood quote. You didn't like it? Worst piece of garbage you've ever seen. Well, you'll like the next one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good quote. That's a, and a great, great way to compare the, the process at that time to now. I also think you really, you know, made a point to others and anyone listening, but it, it resonated with me as soon as you said it, the idea of investing in yourself. I think that's always been such a challenge. You know, there are so many stigmas associated with the different ways about it, you know, self-publishing and the format you do it and also the platform that you're using. But I, I've come across so many great stories. I mean, yours is a is an amazing example in four days. I mean, I've seen them go down to the wire and I, I've seen a couple where it was like, hey, we got funded in the final 24 hours. And there's a huge spectrum to be considered for all of that. But I, I love also the fact that there's such a reward in the decision to take, call it a risk, the choice, the chance, but also to learn like you did. I mean, before that happened, how aware were you of, of, of the international fan base for the content you were providing or the characters that you were including in it? I mean, zero, you absolutely did it, zero. Right? <laughs> I, I had no notion whatsoever that this was a thing, but um, comics are, they're a strange, strange arena because there are facets of it that I adore and facets of it that I hate. And I think since so much of it revolves around things that you can't see behind the scenes versus how things are portrayed online, comics Twitter is ridiculous with its boasting, its fanfarinade, its bloated opinions of self. And none of that is reflected on Wednesday when the new books are put out on the shelf. And I think that it's really easy to get lost in the echo chamber and think that's the only 
facet of an entire medium. So when I like, I, I hate Twitter, but it's a necessary evil. When I go on and I'm like, hey, here's this thing I'm drawing. Okay, two likes, awesome. That's not reflective of the people that showed up in droves. And they were like, yes, this is what we want. Because you don't know. There was a, a Mark Miller quote going around a while ago that Twitter makes up for 10% of your actual readership. And I'll be darned if that isn't 100% accurate because so many people love comics and are looking for something new from comics or something different. And they'll show up if, you know, you find the right way to shout it from the rooftops, they'll show up, especially if it's good and it's fun. And they showed up and I'm blown away by that. And you know what, because of that and because of the way that I've interacted with them, they'll probably show up again and I will make sure it's an enjoyable experience. Man. And you know, now that there's something waiting for you when you do come back, you know, that there's oh, an yeah. audience there. You, you know, it's, it's that confirmation. Not only did you get rewarded for taking the risk for, you know, stepping out there and saying, here's what I have to offer, you know, and I'm prepared for whatever the response is you get that great response and there's that awareness, you know, that I'm going to bring back something more. Not only do I have more to say, but I also know that you're there, you're ready. And if I'm going to honor the relationship we've begun, I I'm going to give you more because I also feel like there's part of that connection that says there's a reason why I started this. It wasn't just to say, hi, look what I did and, and take care now. This was great. Um, it's, it's about, Hey, let's see what we can do together next. You know, here's an opportunity to, to have this you know, ongoing relationship. And I think for that's sure. a great opportunity for, for readers to know too. There's, you know, as you mentioned, you know, how many decades later will fans wait for that other book to come out? Yeah. And I, I heard from a self-published uh, author who I think we talked back in like maybe uh, November or so, Maggie. And I remember she was describing like this idea of the control she has about how soon she can get her material out to her audience, that if she was working with certain houses, there was a chance that it would be one to three years before they're getting the books. And she's like, but if I've written the book, why can't I give it to them now? If I yeah. have it ready in a certain timeline, why can't I give them what they're asking for, what I believe that they deserve as part of our relationship? You're, you're able to offer that as well. You know, the time that it's going to take for whatever the next project is, not only will you have an audience waiting, but you're going to be saying to them, I know what it's like to wait. And here's what I've been able to do in the time since you've waiting and make it worth your wait, however long that ends up being. I think that's a huge possibility. I also make a point to keep people abreast of what I'm working on. Like I don't bother with dawdling on the internet that much, but when I'm posting stuff, it's actively showing like work in progress shots mention what the project is. I've got a book coming out in fall through uh, Scout Comics called Cult of Icarus. I've been posting desk shots every day since I started working on it. Just, just so you know, it's going to be coming. It's going to be a while, but look at these process shots. Look at this. Look at the engagement that you have with something as it's happening. Uh, it's like watching a behind the scenes reel for the whole production. And, and it's like uh, you're giving them dailies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> pencil <laughs> shavings and all it's great um and i think that's kind of unique to my process because not a lot of illustrators and comics right now work analog like i'm pen to paper like it's all dip quill brush and ink so the progress shots that they show are like two keystrokes away from being control alt delete like you don't get a feel for what's going into the making of something as much as when you see the physical manifestation of hands on paper. Uh, and that shows out in the final work too, because there's such a vibrancy and a life behind the stuff that I do specifically because I refuse to be bogged down by just tech. Tech doesn't make everything better. It makes things easier, but it doesn't make the execution better. It can amplify, but you know, it's kind of like an acoustic guitar versus an electric an electric guitar you still have to plug in throw an amplifier maybe a couple effects pedals acoustic guitar you can just simon and garfunkel your way to the bank <laughs> oh man one of my uh one of my all-time faves nice 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 reference like um and also just a reminder for me 
there's everything I think I can do in an interview, everything I think I can understand, interpret, um, and bring to light through questions. And then there's the complete awareness that the only time I've ever gotten good at anything is having an extra pair of eyes, whether it was an editor, whether it was in sports as a coach, or whether it was just asking the other person. So this is that opportunity when I stop for a minute, Carl, and say, I've asked a lot of questions that I thought would be really helpful, but have I potentially missed the question you're always waiting to be asked? Is there something I didn't uncover that you can reveal today that, hey, I'm going to get most of the questions right, but sometimes I'm going to miss one. And here's an opportunity to let everyone know what you can tell them, whether I asked about it or not. Uh, Seth, I'm going to be honest with you. You flipping nailed it, bud. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll take the praise. I'll, I'll, no, uh... I just, I love, I love organic conversation where it's a little bit back and forth and not so much like here are my 20 questions. What is the thing that whatever I like, I like people that care because I care. I mean, you listen, we talk about comics and my stuff for five minutes and you pretty much get a sense that this is what I live for <laughs> in a way that, you know, you're not going to get from your Wednesday warriors, but I do think of what I do as a very important art form. I mean, comics are a very American medium. It's, it's the, one of the forefathers of our pop culture, quite frankly. And, uh, I have the utmost respect for it and any way that I can contribute to that in a tangible way, like I'm doing with Evermore Falls, once that's in your hand, I'm part of comics history. And that's, that's a huge realization. That's an amazing one. I always loved when I would do writing classes, when the instructor would remind us about that thing we're all doing, which is at some point there was a master storyteller who did something that caught our attention. And yep. in response, we're always writing back to them. You know, it's, it's, it's like a series of letters. It's, it's like the old pen pal days. It's saying, I know you did this for me. And here is what my response is. Here is what that meant to me. Here is how I'd love to, you know, add my name to that collection, that story, that legacy. And I mean, for starters, any, anyone who gets this book and puts it on their shelves there, that legacy is living on in those pages on that shelf and for anyone they open it for, whether it's just for themselves, whether they have the kids gather around. I remember my first exposure to Narnia was in the backyard of the rental house we had in Fremont, California. My mom on the lawn chair um, and us sitting around learning about the Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe and Prince Caspian. And, and from that point, like having this, one of those entry points for stories, being sitting around and hearing a story that wasn't spoon fed fed you know it was it was a story that began this idea of something that I can enjoy with my family that sometimes dealt with serious things but also encouraged me my imagination and I think what you are offering through Evermore Falls and everything we've talked about is that same legacy so I'm I'm really grateful that I get the chance to not only talk with you about it but for anybody listening share that for them to hear because I, I think when you can do that I mean man if you're going to leave behind something for others to look at, it's, it's quite a quite a piece of evidence for who you are and what you had to, to offer through this and I believe many other works to come. Oh, plenty more, sir. Plenty more. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also mentioned that there's all these different things that you're doing where you're keeping people up to date. Can you go ahead and share the, the ones that people can check out? Because they're like, okay, Carl, I, I want to see, you know, tell me about this Icarus project that you're working on. Let me see what these other things are that you're doing. Uh, allow me to be part of that, that engagement with you as a creator and as someone who wants to enjoy the progress of your work. The, um, the thing that is awesome about Carl Slominski, the creator, and not so much Carl Slominski, the person, is that I need to work on a dozen things at once. And I also can't half-ass things. So I am constantly working on a multitude of projects of the same caliber all at once. Uh, it keeps me sane, it keeps me level, and it keeps me out of trouble. <laughs> so on any given day, I'm working on about two or three things, not always simultaneously, but my day is very structured out of, you wake up, you do this, you do this, then you sit down and you work on comics. You take a break, maybe you eat, then you work on this comic. If you have more time, you work on this comic or this project or what have you. Um, 
and currently I'm wrapping up work on Cult of Icarus, which I am the artist on. It's written by my lovely fiance, Jenna Lynn Wright. It'll be coming out this fall from Scout Comics. And it is a blood-soaked punk rock vampire opus like you've yet to see. The complete and polar opposite of the good times, happy fun zone of Evermore Falls. <laughs> So the antithesis is something that we could maybe bring on and talk about maybe in the fall. Should you have oh, absolutely. Time your schedule? Absolutely. <laughs> I and love talking about myself. Who doesn't? <laughs> hey, man, I'm an enabler. I'm, I'm here to help. I'm a singleton male. We've always been enablers. It's just how it goes. I um, appreciate ask, that. <laughs> you, hey, my pleasure. Ask my wife. She'll confirm this. Uh, she takes advantage of it to an extent. More often than not, she just delights in it. Um, but <laughs> I, I love the fact that you're working with your fiance on this project. I, I would love to have you back on so you could both talk about uh, Cult of Icarus, if that would be something that interested you both. Um, really quickly, too, what are the social media channels that you prefer people follow you? What's your handle real quick so that they can sort of know, hey, uh, he's on Twitter. Is there, you know, are you on Twitch or others where you're doing things like that? Or I have a minimal but active social media presence on most platforms. Uh, it's just okay. my name at Carl Slaminski. Really simple. Uh, if you can spell my name, it's in your show notes, I'm sure. Uh, and also <laughs> my website, be. which is slow motion art, uh, but it's spelled like my name, SLO motion art. And uh, that's pretty much it because I don't like things that detract from work and making stuff. I don't want to engage in too much stuff that'll detract from me making stuff. Understood. Understood. And I feel like but people it... in comics have an unhealthy relationship with uh, distractions. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that. I've noticed that too. <laughs> I think it's, it's a consistent noticing. thing. I noticed that when I was back in art school, like the guys had halo night and that became halo week night. And then it was just Halo all the time. And I was like, I've never played a video game in my life. And I can totally see why I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> Goodbye, any kind of productivity. Right. And hello, um, lethargy, sleeplessness, and a whole host of other things that, you know, always need time, energy, just to combat, let alone survive. Uh, exactly. you know, there's, there's like this part of me where I'm like, why am I working against myself so much? Like, why is it I don't want to succeed? Because clearly that's what I'm doing here. Like, I'm, I'm guaranteeing that there's going to be problems or it's going to be twice as hard to get anything done. You get it. Yeah. You get it. It's the plug of <laughs> a creative. Awesome. <laughs> why did I do that to right. myself? It felt like a good idea at the time, and now I can't do anything. Yeah, this was... Uh, I'm going to think about this for a while. I need caffeine. See? I need caffeine. And <laughs> Carl, um, thank you so much. I, I, I love coming into a conversation, knowing some and discovering so much more. And what you introduced to me, not only about what you're doing through Evermore Falls, what you're doing with these amazing characters, but also what you have in store for the future. This has been a really awesome exchange. I, I enjoyed every minute. I, I love when I end. And I'm smiling because I've been laughing that much. Uh, this has been a delight. It's been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for having me, Seth. Uh, I look forward to coming back, man. This has been great. Awesome. I, I can't wait to have you back on. I think it's going to be awesome for anyone listening, for everyone listening. Check the show liner notes. You'll see all the ways to get in touch with Carl, spell his name correctly, the whole nine <laughs> yards. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording so you and I can just go ahead and wrap up off air. Thank you, right everyone, on. for listening. Um, I hope you enjoy Carl's story as much as I did, because this was fun. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of my amazing conversation with Carl Slominski, an artist whose project I'm glad I didn't miss, and I was really grateful I got the chance to share with you. Yeah, I can still hear the outside noises of folks enjoying their sunny weather, and it looks like some of the, well, at least one of the dogs has been lying in the sun too long and is panting away, but... For all of those distractions, I'm reminded of the fact that Evermore Falls will be on Kickstarter until June 27th, and all the details. For those of you interested or just looking to make contact with Carl or learn more about the project, you can find those in the liner notes. And until next time, I look forward to the opportunity to doing exactly what happened with Carl, sharing a great story, maybe even your story, here on Storytelling with Seth.